Welcome to the Infinite Women podcast. I'm your host, Alison Tyra, and today I'm joined by Eveline de Brown, a glass artist from the Netherlands, to discuss biases in how women's lives are documented and the impact that this has on future generations. So why don't we start with how this topic sort of came up for you personally? I started as an artist. I was curious about uh, my foremothers because I knew some of the history of my forefathers, but nothing of them. You know, I didn't even know their last names because you get your last name from your father's uh, side. And uh, I wanted to make a series of portraits uh, of those people to get them out of oblivion and to tell their stories. Uh, so I started researching and in Holland, Fortunately, everything is online, so I could uh, do a lot of research and I could find birth certificates, censuses, uh, local documents, legal documents. And uh, that way I discovered uh, dozens of stories of like common women from uh, the 17th century to the 19th century in the Netherlands uh, who juggled careers with motherhood. I, I've started telling these stories uh, through my portraits. I've got not yet... Uh, seven finished but i've got many more stories uh, uh i work slower as an artist than i do as a researcher apparently <laughs> so this was a, a very personal quest i also started yeah because uh, i wanted to know more about uh, who i am but i noticed that these women represent actually a lot of uh, foremothers uh, of people here in the netherlands and uh, as well of some uh, australian and american people <laughs> because, uh, there are a lot of them over there as well. Um, yeah, and I knew I came from a line of millers on my father's side. So when you look at the records, you can see generations of my forefathers uh, named as millers. Uh, but then I discovered that some of these men's actually, men actually died quite young and their wives took over their mill um, in their husband's names. And I have these uh, women like uh, Lamberta Segers. Uh, she was a miller in the 18th century and uh, in a very yet yeah, Dutch traditional windmill, as you know from the pictures. Um, this windmill also still exists. Um, Maria Donkers is another example. She was a miller for uh, about 20 years when her husband was only a miller for 10 years uh, in the late 19th and 20th century. And she ran uh, a modern mill, uh, which was uh, which had a steam engine uh, with 17 horsepower, very uh, uh, fancy. Um, and she had at least one employee. Uh, her son also uh, uh, worked in the mill and later took over the mill. Um, but she had financial control and she was always named as the widow of uh, Van Tuyn. But uh, yeah, her own name was never or hardly ever in the records. And, but it shows that both had business insight and technical knowledge, which are skills that are yeah not often ascribed to girls. And I can only imagine her walking around the steam engine and uh, discussing what had to be done and uh, uh, controlling all the money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it seems like there's a lot of you can't be what you can't see, meaning if there's no proof of women having been scientists or artists or businesswomen, it reinforces the idea even today that women aren't as good as men and can't accomplish the same things. Yeah, and that sets the standards that leads to the idea that women wanting another life than motherhood or not finding satisfaction in motherhood alone are divergent and that feminism is a relatively new trend that only caters to the needs of a small group of women. Uh, but while in fact there are many women from different backgrounds that had careers, 
And over the century uh, here in the Netherlands, women have only been registered as homemakers and children can only compare their professional ambitions and talents to the careers of their forefathers. But when you know nothing about the talents and accomplishments of your foremothers, you don't know in which way you look like them. And for girls, the only example is motherhood. And I actually think that's a, a real job. And unfortunately, women don't get paid for it. <laughs> but oh, that's a whole other episode. Yeah, most definitely. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but what if motherhood doesn't fit those ambitions or if it doesn't feel like enough? Eh? Are they failing as a, a woman? Are they more like their fathers? Um, and also, in a way, I think the same goes for men and boys as well. There are no records of men being homemakers. And boys don't think being a stay-at-home dad is an option or very masculine or something like that. Well, there might be a, quite a lot of men who would enjoy the life of a homemaker and might be better at it than some women. Yeah, my husband would make an excellent house husband, but um, unfortunately, he decided to go the career route. <laughs> <laughs> now, obviously, you're approaching this from a Dutch perspective, but we do see this in so many different countries. Um, like speaking as an American, back in 1888, activist Charlotte Smith convinced the U.S. Patent Office to compile an official comprehensive list of women who had been granted patents uh, because she wanted to show that women are doing this. And four clerks spent 10 days putting together a list that a later analysis found had probably left out at least one in five women. So even when they were specifically assigned to do this, it was such shoddy work. Yeah, I I don't get why they don't find it a priority. But fortunately for women in the Netherlands, they had a, a bit more independence than in other European countries. It's I heard later that it was exceptional. I did not notice, but they were allowed to trade in their husband's name. Girls had an equal share in the inheritance, but no control over their money until they married. Uh, widows had full financial independence. And one of my foremothers, uh, Christina, she lived during the first half of the 18th century and she was married to a traveling salesman. And he would drive his horse and cart with butter and beer to uh, Belgium and Germany. Oh, this also sounds very Dutch. <laughs> when I, uh, but when I read the judicial archives, I found that she would sometimes travel with him. Um, but also that she handled a lot of the finances. The funny thing is that the thing where women were seemed like in incapacitated or not able to do so, that you see that mostly women are, I saw this in many more examples, that women are the ones uh, dealing with the finances. And uh, she was also pretty tough when it came to collecting debts. Uh, and I found also this, this weird or funny example of her demanding a debt in the name of her husband from another woman. And that woman responded very witty that, well, she couldn't have any debt because she was financially incapacitated because she was married and her husband had control of the money. So, uh, yeah, there was nothing to pay. I thought <laughs> this is funny that they took advantage of their own problem. <laughs> they used it in their own benefit. And I was actually just talking with someone about an American businesswoman, uh, Sarah B. Cochran, who ran this massive business empire, but census records for her occupation were often left blank or just they said none. And it means it's also a lot more difficult for people um, like the person I was talking to as a biographer. And she was having a really hard time trying to piece together the story, even though she knew exactly who she was looking for and where to look. 
but just because the records are incomplete or inaccurate. So it makes it a lot harder for the people who are looking for these stories. Yeah, exactly. And it's the same here. Also because you don't know the last name. So it's much harder to find. Sometimes the last name is not even in some of the birth certificates or records. Uh, you just have a first name and then you have to search from there. And uh, most women here were, as I said, described as homemakers or as widows of so-and-so. Uh, and it's especially hard to find traces of poor women. And a large part of my family were relatively poor farmers. And we know that these women worked for sure because they they had to help on the farm next to raising children. And uh, husband and wives, they both worked together uh, on a farm to keep it going. Uh, but you hardly find anything about these women. And I have to use my imagination to uh, see what kind of life uh, they had. It also depended on the municipality because uh, some were very diligent and others were very sloppy. Uh, in Nune, the village where I talked about before, uh, two of my uh, foremothers, uh, Maria Habraken and her daughter-in-law, Maria van Lieshout, uh, they were both from upper middle class families, so they weren't that poor, and both became widows at an early age, and they were actually registered according to their professions, which is uh, uh, nice to see. <laughs> uh, Maria, so... So now I could discover this. Uh, I wouldn't have found out otherwise. But Maria Habraken ran a small textile fac factory that was so well respected. Uh, uh, and she was so uh, yeah, seen in the village as a real businesswoman that they titled her a manufacturer, which was normally only a title given to uh, men. And uh, Maria van Lieshout, uh, she ran a local pub from home because she had young children. And so she could earn uh, money while taking care of her small children and pouring beer for local men. I would imagine it doesn't hurt to be popular as the person making the beer. <laughs> no, most definitely not. <laughs> yeah, people did this, in I understood, in the Netherlands. They just did it from their home, uh, from their living room, let's say. Then people would come and they could uh, have a beer to drink. Uh, <laughs> and... Coming back to modern times, when we're looking at scholars, historians, archaeologists, there's this issue with androcentrism, meaning the tendency to focus only on what the men were doing and just ignoring the women. And sometimes it's really blatant, like you have guys who will bend over backwards trying to insist that a woman buried with weapons and armor wasn't a warrior for no other reason than they just don't believe a woman could be a warrior. And apart from overlooking women's accomplishments, um, on the archaeological side, it creates this blind spot that hides important factors around entire cultures. So modern understanding of the Vikings, for example, focuses almost exclusively on male warriors because that was the focus of the scholarship and media depictions. But in 2020, um, an archaeologist, Michelle Heyer-Smith, published The Valkyrie's Loom, The Archaeology of Cloth Production and Female Power in the North Atlantic. Um, so she pointed out that the women were producing this high quality standardized woolen cloth, but it was valuable enough that it was literally used as currency in Iceland. Like it, this cloth formed the backbone of Viking trade and it was particularly desired in England. So it was, you know, important financial support for the Viking community. And because they were ignoring women's work and thinking textiles weren't important, archaeologists just overlooked this major aspect of the entire civilization. So, you know, it's undermining the entire foundations of what we know. 
Yeah, and, and I don't understand it. Sometimes it feels, uh, uh, and I know I have thought so before ever looking into this, that women have been suppressed for ever since uh, humans walked the earth. Uh, but uh, it's... Uh, I thought that it, it wasn't right, but that it was natural because men are stronger. And I think a lot of people think the same. Uh, but a lot of this is biased. Uh, as your example shows, there were periods and cultures where women were equal to men, uh, sometimes even had like leading roles. Uh, and, and sometimes I don't really understand why this has changed. Why were women so suppressed and undervalued uh, in so many cultures all over the world for such a long time? And it's just... It's not like all men had a meeting and said, let's go and make women our slaves or supporters <laughs> or whatever. Um, uh, but then I read uh, Caliban and the Witch. I don't know if you know it by Silvia Federici. Uh, she wrote that women in Europe uh, had gained more freedom in the Middle Ages. Um, uh, and from the 15th century, the economic system changed more from sustenance farming to market driven production. And for that reason, a large workforce became important. And because of sickness, sometimes there wasn't, weren't enough people to work. So women were seen as producers of more workforce. And therefore, it became important to get more control over women and to get them to focus on having more children, which literally became uh, women's labor. Uh, and she, uh, Sylvia, she states that witch hunts were a way to control the female population. Uh, so independent women were punished, uh, obedient women survived. And in the late 16th century, I also see this example uh, in my foremothers' lives. Uh, they lived through uh, one of the biggest witch hunts in our country, uh, right in their small village of uh, Lirop. Uh, it's a tiny hamlet. It's still very small. Uh, there were only a couple of hundred inhabitants and seven women were tortured and killed. And in the neighboring villages, more than 18 women uh, were murdered. Um, the most horrible death was that of a 90-year-old woman, which was really sad, who was probably senile and couldn't confess to her crimes. And she was burned alive on the moor. It was horrible. Um, my oldest known foremother, Ida, I don't know her last name, uh, she must have been a child or a teenager around that time. And maybe it was her mother who was murdered, maybe her grandmother or her aunt, but she must have known at least one of these people. And this trauma must have impacted her life immensely, and it must have affected the way she raised her two daughters, of which uh, Margriet is uh, my foremother. Um, and then you read the opinions of other historians about the witch hunts, and they say, oh, they were not exclusively focused on women. It wasn't against women uh, because about 25% of condemned witches were male. And I'm like, still, 75% was were women. You know, it's a very big difference. Uh, and maybe these men might have also been different from most men. Maybe these were also independent or maybe gay men. Uh, yeah, uh, I don't know. It's like the women warriors. Like there are some people who will look for any excuse to say, oh, this wasn't sexism. It's like, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, there were men as well. And I'm like, yeah, but still, you know, population is 50, 50, 75 percent women. Sorry. And in this case, they were all women. There were no, no men.
Yeah. And there are also like, if you look at the patterns, there's a lot of things um, like women who are financially independent, like you were saying, and it's just like, yes. come on guys, there's it's here no... the same, especially widows who were, uh, were financially independent in the Netherlands and uh, they were targeted. Yeah. Plus I feel like anytime you're defending people who burned other people alive, <laughs> not a good thing. On the wrong side. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, okay, so on a on a more positive note, um, I did have a look yeah. at Dutch women specifically, and I did find a few interesting examples that I just wanted to share real quick. Um, so there's Golden Age painter uh, Judith Leister, whose entire yeah. body of work was attributed to men or left unattributed for many years. Um, it was a case of the nameless wife. So like you were saying, um, you know, a lot of these women we don't have a last name for. Some of them we don't even have a first name for because the um, when she died, the inventory of the estate attributed many paintings to the wife of Molnar. And I'm sorry if I'm yeah. butchering. <laughs> oh yeah, Molnar. It is actually Miller. It's, uh... <laughs> <laughs> but not to Judith Leister. And her husband was one of the painters that um, her work was attributed to, but there was actually at least one case of deliberate forgery. In 1893, the Louvre discovered her signature underneath a forged um, Hall's signature. So this was another male artist on a 1630 painting called The Carousing Couple or The Jolly Companions. And the fraud actually dates back to the 1600s, possibly even her lifetime, which was 1609 to 1660. And another version of the painting had been sold in Brussels in 1890, and her distinctive JL monogram had been crudely altered to an interlocking FH for Franz Hall's. And an investigation in 1893 happened because one dealer bought it from another, sold it on to a customer, and then they noticed the odd signature. So the buyer took the case to court and an art historian examined the painting, testified it was definitely not Hull's signature, but Leister's. And it really shows the monetary incentive that dealers and museums have to not look too closely at potential attributions because the painting's value dropped by 25%. And each dealer was blaming the other. No one was paying attention to the rediscovery of this once renowned painter's work. Um, and it did lead to seven more of her paintings being identified. And I will say uh, recognition and appreciation for her work has increased since the 1890s. <laughs> one of her paintings yeah. sold for $2.3 million in 2018. Uh, but it, yeah. it just really goes to show that even when someone is doing something very publicly visible, she was very well known at the time. Yes. But <laughs> it was so easy yeah. to erase her name from her own work. Yes. And she was, and, and Franz Hals, he just sold so much better than Leister because he was a man and famous. And uh, you did Leister, uh, fortunately, with some other uh, Dutch female masters, is finally getting some more recognition uh, also in the Netherlands. Because I only learned about her existence a couple of years ago uh, on a TV program. And um, uh, this show, uh, they were looking to attribute a portrait uh, 
of her, not by her. Uh, and they wanted uh, the portrait to be by Frans Hals, of course, because uh, that uh, would get a lot of money. <laughs> and uh, the hosts were trying to find other likenesses of Judith uh, to compare with. And then they showed one other portrait, which they knew for sure was by uh, Frans, Frans Hals, and two of her self-portraits. And the weird thing was that there were no strong similarities between the portrait by Frans Hals and her self-portraits. But the presenters of the show still thought that Frans Hals's portrait was probably the most accurate because it looked most like the unattributed portrait that's, that they wanted to be by Frans Hals. And I thought it was sort of weird because Judith for sure knew best what she looked like. <laughs> uh, and I also really like uh, the self-portrait she made by herself because they show much more personality uh, than the ones by uh, by Hals, uh, where she's a bit, yeah, I don't know, her face is a bit uh, um, made more soft, less serious, more feminine, I think. And uh, in her own paintings, you see, yeah, more features, more expression, which I uh, like. Yeah. yeah, and I'm not an art historian, but I've heard the same said about um, Italian painter Artemisia Gentileschi when you compare her yeah. work to her father so her father had would, would paint women in this very idealized kind of soft manner and artemisia is over here um doing the best depiction of judith beheading holofernes it's that i've seen awesome. i don't know if you've seen yeah. it it's so good yeah well, i haven't <laughs> seen it live but i've seen it it's great yeah <laughs> yeah it, and yeah. you compare it to other like men's paintings of the same scene and mm -hmm. the woman's like reluctant and you know hesitant and very like the body language is yeah. so different whereas yeah. hers is like no i'm here to cut a guy's head off and we're gonna do yeah it. she's in control yeah <laughs> Yeah, it's uh, it's very strong. I like it as well. Yeah. And just switching over to the sciences, uh, Dutch botanist and geneticist Jantina Thomas was one of only 11 women students at the University of Groningen in 1890, where she was allowed to attend lectures but not take exams, culminating in a teaching diploma rather than a degree in science. Um, she then went on to be the first professor of genetics in the Netherlands of any gender despite having to put up with that nonsense. And I only learned this year of her existence. I mean, this is all not known. And for a long time, uh, people thought that having one example of a smart Dutch woman was enough, you know. And for us, that became Aletta Jacobs, who was the first Dutch female with a, a university degree and also a feminist. She was a doctor. Uh, but what example is it enough? We need many more uh, to give girls and women the feeling that these are accomplishments that are not only possible for exceptional women, for but for every woman and uh, just as much, much as a man. And I want boys as well to notice the accomplishments of their mothers, uh, to look up to their mothers and say, oh, when I grow up, I want to be like my mommy uh, instead of my daddy. And um you also just briefly uh, dropped the word gender and uh, that's also a point we haven't touched on yet because uh the past centuries people were only registered as either male or female and uh i've been talking about foremothers and forefathers being examples to girls and boys um and even though this is yeah, written as black and white there i know that there are more and more examples found also in historical documents that even back in the day people didn't feel so uh, binary. And uh, 
uh, yeah, famous examples are, of course, uh, Anne Lister, the English diarist from the 19th century. There's also a nice TV series from the BBC about her. And uh, Sappho, the Greek poet from Lesbos, uh, where the name lesbian comes from, where the word lesbian. And uh, in the records of my foremothers, I couldn't find anything that hinted to homosexuality or gender issues. There's just too little known uh, about them. And these things weren't registered unless you were, well, uh, somebody who wrote a lot and uh, stories are uh, left behind. But uh, I do have a strong feeling that there is one because in my mother's family and extended family, there are a lot of gay people. Uh, I know of at least six. Uh, two of them are my uncle and aunt, a brother and sister. And uh, so for the portraits I'm making of my foremothers, I have asked uh, women in my family to be a model because I don't have any pictures of the real foremothers. And uh, I ask these women to imagine being them and how they would live those their lives uh, as their foremothers. And I asked my aunt Maria, who is gay, uh, to imagine being her great-grandmother, Johanna Maria van Vlerke. And she was a farmer's wife in the late 19th century, and she died in childbirth. And I wanted a story from her perspective as well. Uh, and I thought, well, knowing my aunt, I expected her to say that uh, she would completely suppress her sexuality her whole life and be a good wife and a good mother. Uh, but to my surprise, she actually said that she would have tried to find romance if it meant sneaking around. Uh, that she, yeah, that she would have probably wanted to find love outside of marriage. Um, and I'm sure that stories like these must have happened. And uh, I'm very uh, happy and honored that I get to tell one of them uh, through my portraits. It's crazy to me that people try and claim that, um, you know, being genderqueer or non-heterosexual is a new thing because it's more visible now. But when you look at, you know, the repercussions for people who felt like they had to hide, um, because they did. I mean, there were there are so many stories. We have um, another episode about Freda Dufar, um, who was mm -hmm. a lesbian, and um, you know her partner was um, committed to an insane asylum, and um, she and Freda herself later ended up killing herself because that's the the environment they were living in was so toxic to to women who loved other women. It was horrible. One of the issues that you see with the preservation of documents is who controls them after their creator died. So when we're talking specifically about queer women, um, you know, obviously this happened with Emily Dickinson's work after she died. Um, a lot of the queerness was edited out um, by her brother's mistress. <laughs> oh. <laughs> because Emily had a longstanding um, romantic relationship with her sister-in-law, so her brother's wife. Ah. And there was this fight over who controlled her stuff after she died um, and ah. the mistress, um, whether for, you know, morality based reasons or because she was just being petty about yeah. you know, her married lover's wife. Um, yeah, edited out a lot of the like dedications to this woman and that sort of thing. Um, so, yeah, you, you do see that. I think on both fronts with with women and particularly with queer people um mm -hmm. and just to bring it back to the Netherlands <laughs> um I I think we can agree the most well-known diary in modern history is Anne Frank's um but 
after she died, the diary was given to her father. And um, as we've later discovered, there were a lot of things that were edited out to make her seem more innocent, more childlike, as opposed to, you know, the, the teenager that she was. So it wasn't giving, again, going back to that um issue that we were talking about with idealized women rather than realistic women, or in her case, you know, teenagers. Um, so some of the things that were edited out, um, she apparently talked about her sexuality, um, touching her friend's breasts, menstruation, um, which I think a lot of teenage girls would find a lot more relatable. Um, but yeah, you know, she talks about sex and childbirth and um, sex workers. <laughs> It is kind of understandable that a father would not necessarily want um, that sort of content that his daughter had written being put out into the world. Um, but it definitely creates a very different picture of this sort of idealized, sexless, perfect child who, you know, isn't talking about, um, you know, issues that she had with her mom. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it, it's not accurate it's not an honest portrait of who this person was no it's not and um and frank was also a very important example for me and my sister when we were uh, younger uh, uh we both looked up to her uh and uh yeah we thought she was yeah mysterious girl who uh, who was so smart uh, when she was uh, only a teenager and uh, who had gone through so much and uh, who had unfortunately died right right before the end of the war and um uh, in the early 90s they uh, printed a special edition of her diaries and it was called the complete diaries of uh, Anne Frank and my sister she got the book for her birthday and in it, you can see three different versions of the diary, which was uh, really nice. One is the version uh, which you call the Achterhuis version, the, uh, the one that her father edited. Next, it was a later uh, edition where they uh, cut out uh, less stuff. And there is one version completely unedited. And uh, you see on one page, you can see uh, fragments of all three. And then uh, it goes uh, on. It's kind of funny to see. So you can read immediately all three versions in one page. Uh, and I would read and compare these uh, different versions. And I knew that her father had cut out negative comments about his wife uh, because uh, uh, and was very critical about her mother, uh, as well as the stories about uh, puberty and sexuality and her crush on the uh, Peter is only a little bit uh, in there. <laughs> and uh, I read most of the diaries as a 12-year-old. Uh, at the time, I wasn't that interested in the whole sexuality stuff. And I don't understand why people get so upset about it, uh, that it's there and they want to ban the book. I have no idea. Uh, because children will read what they want to read in it and what they associate with it and at that time I was most of all happy to see that the unedited version was full of mistakes because <laughs> before I had the feeling that Anne was uh, very very smart and had superb writing and linguistic talent and uh, now I knew that she was just a normal girl like me and uh, that I might be able to uh, become a writer uh, and that's also what I what I wanted to show with with this project is that there are many examples uh, in history of 
normal women trying to live a life outside the the edges of or on the edges of convention and uh, as times are changing i think these stories uh, send more and more of a message to people now of like you can do this too and uh, uh, you're not alone and yeah and that's i i like that <laughs> yeah it's a lot more relatable to see a real person and not feel like you have to live up to some unrealistic ideal. Um, looking at you, Instagram filters <laughs> and impossible <laughs> standards. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but... that, that's that's it. It sometimes feels like, oh, that's only possible for a few people, and maybe the top of something like being an artist as big as did Leister. Uh, that's not attainable for me but i can be an artist uh, uh you know it is attainable but there are more examples than we think you don't have to to be the best to be good at something and to uh, do this kind of work and you don't have to be a unique woman to follow your ambitions uh and to enjoy that you can see in history that women try to do that and sometimes successfully, but also sometimes, unfortunately, unsuccessfully. And now that there's more opportunity and more stories known, I think uh, more women will accomplish this success. Yeah. For me, uh, this uh, project has sent me on a whole road of discoveries and now uh, on a podcast. And uh, I'm really looking forward in the future, not to just dig into my own foremothers, but also into the foremothers of uh, other people and uh, discovering uh, their adventures. Join us next time on the Infinite Women podcast. And remember, well-behaved women rarely make history.